The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. It's been a while. Took a, a break. Uh, I was out of town one weekend, so Sam Kim preached for me, appropriately on the topic of Abraham. That's great. That's going to coincide with uh, James a couple of times. Then I did a Christmas message, and then... Um, we had last year, for those of you who weren't here, because there are a lot of you who weren't here, we did uh, spiritual Christian Bible New Year's resolutions. Ten points. One of those was clean up your room. Well, it convicted a lot of people. And I promised I was going to clean up my garage, and I can't believe how many people held me accountable for that. I felt really bad and guilty. Did you clean your garage? Did you clean your garage? Because I knew I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't, so I, I did. I tried. Um, so that was kind of fun. So now we are back to the book of James after almost a month. Uh, so we'll pick up where we left off last time. So everybody open up your Bible over there to uh, James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're going to be looking at James chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 today. And see what James has for us as we've been going through the book of James uh, chapter by chapter. And as we uh, want to go through this whole book as James has given it. So follow along with me as I read James chapter 3. One and following. Wait, some of you have kind of a, a, a questionable look on your face as though I don't know what I'm talking about. What, are we supposed, are we supposed to be in James chapter 2? Oh, James 2! Verses 21 through 26. Oh man, that is a scary part of the book of James. Uh, true story. When somebody suggested to me that we preach on the book of James, the first thing I thought of was, well, I don't know if I want to do that because if I teach on the book of James, that means I've got to actually uh, struggle and wrestle with and try to interpret James chapter 2 verses 21 to 26. And every seminary student in the world knows that's like one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And it's one of those passages like John 8 and uh, Mark 16 that you just kind of want to skip. So I thought since, wow, it's been four weeks since I preached in James, they probably forgot what I taught on it. And I'll skip James chapter 2 verse 21 to 26 and just pick up on chapter 3. That was my strategy. Uh, it didn't work. My bad. Because it's actually in the bulletin. So... That was a dead giveaway. But it is true. Uh, Chapter 2 of James, 14 to 26, for 2,000 years, has been a challenge to those in the church and Christians. Uh, And there are some that are notable and historic, memorable, like, for example, Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, grew up as a Roman Catholic, was a Roman Catholic priest, uh, was raised with a very... A strong view of works righteousness. In other words, you get not saved by your works, but you earn God's ongoing approval and forgiveness of sin through doing good works. That's how he was trained and taught until he was probably in his 20s. And that was ingrained in his brain. And then he uh, studied Romans and then understood the true gospel that salvation is not by works. It is wholly by God's grace through faith. And he was saved and born again. And he had such an aversion to the idea that we can earn any of God's favor through human works that he really struggled with the book of James and James chapter 2 in particular. And he didn't reject it outright, but he he admittedly struggled with it and had difficulty with it. But he's not the only one. And like I said, if you you want a challenge in terms of interpretation, uh, James chapter 2 is a formidable challenge. It's also twisted and distorted and used for wrong purposes many times by different people and different religionists who have a wrong view. And that's what... uh, you know, Peter told us that 
at the end of his epistle, he said, you know, some of the things in Scripture in the New Testament and in the epistles particularly, they are difficult and hard to understand, which the unstable distort because they don't have the right perspective. They don't have God's leading on it. James 2 falls into that category because there are people, even professing Christians, uh, who will use James chapter 2 to say that we need to do good works to earn God's favor, either for salvation or for sanctification, and that is totally wrong. So this isn't just weird cultic groups that struggle with this. Although the, probably the best well-known, at least in America from this point of view, would be Mormonism, which does teach formally that you are saved by grace plus works. That's their formal doctrine. That's what they teach. They're not ashamed of that. I'm not undermining or maligning them by saying that. That's what they teach and believe. And if you talk to a Mormon missionary, like I used to for a hobby when I was in college, all the, every, in my dorm room, every Saturday morning, there's two Mormon missionaries coming to McManus's dorm room, and then the next week there's four Mormon missionaries coming to McManus's room, and up to, we had up to six and eight Mormon missionaries coming to my room. And we just sit around and talk forever about theology, the Bible. But this was a common thing. And they would hammer away at this. They would open up their King James Bible to James chapter 2, and they would read this verse. They'd read one verse. James 2.24. You see that a man, a human, is justified by works. There it is. And they'd say, there it is in the Bible. Human beings are saved by works. And I would, man, I was a brand new Christian. I would struggle with that. I was like, wow. Are they telling that, is this right? And so I was kind of in a, a fog at the time, having a really hard time to explain that. So, I would ask you, put your nose, James 2.24, look at it. You see that a man or a human or people or sinners is justified by works. And not by faith alone. I don't know if that troubles you. This morning in the youth Sunday school class, uh, Pastor Bob had a little phrase written on the whiteboard and as they all came in, they had to check a box. Uh, which comes first, faith or works? And then they put faith or works. It was interesting. To, I was just watching, gauging to see what they would say. But if you had just this verse to go on, you see that a man is justified or saved by works, not by faith alone. That poses a problem, doesn't it? Uh, stay in James, but go back. Here's why it poses a problem. Uh, go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And then also get your finger in Ephesians chapter 2. Galatians 3, verse uh, 16. The Apostle Paul talking about how people get saved. Keep in mind that James just said in James 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then in Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works. Wow! That sounds totally contradictory. Galatians 3.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And James says just the opposite. You're not saved by faith alone. Wow, do we have an error in the Bible? Do we have a contradiction? Well, a lot of people who like to undermine Christianity in the Bible will go here quickly to say, see, your Bible has errors, it's contradictory, and then they'll point out Galatians 3.16 is totally contradictory to James chapter 2, verse 24. And it, on the surface, it appears that way, doesn't it? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Again, the Apostle Paul. James just said, uh, we're saved by, or justified, not saved. He says, you're justified by works and not faith alone. And then Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. And it's through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It is not as a result of works. Verse 9. 
whoa, so I guess James and Paul disagreed and contradicted each other. Well, that's what actually a lot of people will say. But that is not the case at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I would say that James and Paul totally complement one another. They're in perfect harmony, and we're going to see that uh, and hopefully have enough time this morning to show you why. And I think when you understand the whole book of James in its context, James chapter 2 in its context, that phrase 224 in its context, uh, you'll see the light will go on. It's like, oh yeah, this is totally consistent with what Paul said, and here's why. In order to do that, I want to give you some what I call hermeneutical helpers. Hermeneutics is the science and of study and interpretation of the Bible in a proper way. And there are rules that should guide how we interpret the Bible. And so here's my basic fundamental hermeneutical... That's hard to say. Hermeneutical hoopers. Say that five five times really fast. I can't even say it once. Hermeneutical helpers. Just on the book of James, chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. Here they are. They're not in your notes, but I'll just go through them real quick. Seven points before we even get started on the sermon and the outline. Number one, James teaches salvation is by God's initiative, by God's grace, by God's Word, and through faith. James does not teach salvation by works. I'll say it again. James teaches salvation is by God's initiative, God's grace, God's Word, and through Faith. And just real quickly, cursory overview and reminder of some of the key passages in chapter 1 of James where he laid out his soteriology, his salvation of how to be saved. It was clear. So, just by way of reminder, uh, James chapter 1, verses 3 and 6, James introduces his book and he puts a premium on faith. James believes in faith. It's paramount. It is the first thing. It comes first. As a matter of fact, it's the first thing he addresses in his epistle. James 1, 3, knowing that the testing of your faith Then in verse 6, but let him ask in faith. So faith is an operating principle that is a priority in James' mind. It's not some foreign concept to James. Uh, Another one that shows that he believes in salvation by grace through the Word of God on God's initiative by faith. James chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man, blessed is the human being, blessed is... Uh, blessed by God, and he's talking about when you die and you will go to heaven and be with God, and the reason you're going to be with God in the afterlife isn't because of your works. You'll be blessed by God, which includes forgiveness. Why, James? James 1.12. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Okay, that's key. In the end, you will receive ultimate salvation from an eternal perspective when you get to heaven. Well, why? Because of your good works? No. You'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised, get this, to those who love Him. See, it's those who believe in God and love God that get saved and are justified. It's not those who do good works are saved. And he uses the word for love, which is a manifestation of faith, according to Galatians chapter 5 and the fruits of the Spirit. So James believes in salvation that comes from God and it is by grace through faith. Uh, another one there in chapter one, he says salvation is a gift. Clearly, in uh, Genesis, I mean, sorry, James one seventeen, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift. Okay, would you say that salvation is a gift? Absolutely, salvation is a gift of God. Is it a good gift? It's the best gift. And so James makes it clear. Okay, salvation is a gift. 
The best gift, well, where do all good gifts come from? Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, from heaven, coming down from the Father of lights. He is the one who gives good gifts. God is the giver of salvation. James does not believe that salvation is a result of human works originating with our effort. Not at all. He goes on in verse 18 and gets explicit. In the exercise of his will, in the exercise of God's will, on God's initiative, God's volition, what God wants, in the exercise of God's will, God brought us forth. There it is. God made us born again. That's what that phrase means. God did it. Because He wanted to. His initiative. He brought us forth. He saved us. He redeemed us. He made us born again. He made us Christians. He adopted us into the family of God. Those are all synonyms of what He means in verse 18. It is not human works, human effort, human initiative. It's in the exercise of His will. He brought us forth. How did He do it? By the Word of truth. By the Gospel of Jesus Christ. By God's Word. Divine supernatural revelation. Not from our own self. This is perfectly in keeping with Ephesians 2.8.9, what Paul said. Salvation is by grace, through faith. It is the gift of God. It is not of our own selves, lest any man should boast, not as a result of works. Holy of God. So James is right on in sync with the Apostle Paul every step of the way. Verse 21, uh, James says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility received the Word implanted. Received the Word of God. The Word of God which is supernatural from God. It is dynamic. It is living. What does it do? It is able to save your soul. How do we get saved? We got saved by the Word of God on the initiative of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is all His doing, none of ours. So, and I, I could go on and on. Uh, so I just wanted you to see very clearly that James, uh, he knows how salvation happens and it happens by God's grace, not through human works. It starts with God's grace. It is through the medium of faith. And then there's something else to the equation that comes later. And now that's where he is in James chapter 2. One more passage. You can go to Acts 15. Jerusalem Council, the early church. They're having a conference. Peter's there. Paul's there. James is there. James is the head of the church. Get, it's a mega church. They've got 5,000 plus people. There's a controversy in the church. Imagine controversy in a church. There's controversy going on in the church. People are taking sides. They're polarized. People's feelings are hurt. They're stepping on toes. And the leadership rises. The Spirit of God works through the leadership. James is the man. He is the ultimate authority. People look to him. Peter esteems him. Paul esteems him. And they're listening to James, the guy who wrote this epistle. And, and the whole issue is about soteriology, salvation. How are people justified? And the issue at hand is, how are the Gentiles saved? Do they have to do some human work to get saved? Do they have to be circumcised to be saved? And James renders the biblical verdict, absolutely not. Salvation is not by human works. It is by God's grace, God's grace alone, through the Gospel, through faith. And he issues literally a written decree to establish that for all time and preserved for us in Scripture in Acts chapter 15. James is consistent from beginning to end that salvation is holy of God by His grace through faith with no human works involved whatsoever in the process of earning favor with God. So with that foundation now, we can go to James chapter 2 and realize, okay, then wow. So if James says that... Uh, you're justified by works. He must be talking about something else because otherwise he'd be contradicting himself in chapter 1. So he's not talking about getting saved for the first time in verse chapter 2, verse 24 and 21. So let's go ahead and look at it. Then what in the world is James talking about? Oh, a uh, couple other hermeneutical helpers for you. 
Look at James chapter 2, verse 21. Actually, I'm going to read uh, 20 to 23 and then I'll go back. This discussion started in chapter 2, verse 14. Where it said, what, what use it start in verse 14 and then I'll skip down. What use is it, my brethren? What, what use is it, you professing Christians, if you claim to have faith but you don't have any good works to go with it? You're just hot air and a talking mouth. That's absurd. A Christian has to have good works. And then verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? Wow, he's talking to Christians and he says, you foolish, literally, it's you empty head. You empty headed knucklehead. Literal living translation. Who are you, Christian, knucklehead, empty head? Believing that faith without works is useless or void. Then he gives an example. Uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works, offering up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that the faith, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was, was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, summary statement. You see that a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. Okay, this is absolutely key. In verse 21, he says, Abraham, our father, was justified by works. I'm going to propose that the word justified does not mean saved in verse 21. I'm also going to say, I don't think justified believes saved in verse 24. And the reason I say that is because, and this is true in the Greek New Testament, and this is true in any language, a word is defined by its immediate context. A word only has meaning by the context. You can do that in English with every conceivable word. That's why when you go in an English dictionary, you look up a word, one word can have 17 different definitions. With, it can be different parts of speech. The same word can be an adjective, a noun, a verb. Uh, take the word count. The English word count. If I were to ask you, well, what does that mean? Some of you might say, well, that means as a verb to, to number something, to count pennies. Some of you might say, well, that's a person. That's Count Dracula, my favorite character. Or you might use it in a different way that uh, the truth counts or it matters. Okay, there's three different examples of the exact same word that has three totally different meanings, all defined by the context. And, and I don't know, people just don't want to apply that to the Bible. So the, the Greek word there is justified. Or actually, it's that, I'm not even going to say justified because that's an interpretation of what the word is. Dikaios is the word. And it has two meanings in the New Testament. And it comes out of the Old Testament where it has at least two meanings. And this is huge. So, dikaios can mean saved or justified. Where God legally declares you forgiven of your sin in a moment of time based on your belief in the Gospel. Justified. So, dikaios can mean justified. Dikaios can also mean something else different than that. In the Bible, in the New Testament, it can mean validated, proved, or as Robert L. Thomas says, world-renowned Greek scholar. In this context, in James chapter 2, the word dikaios can literally be translated as shown to be righteous, validated as so. A manifestation of an already ongoing existing reality. So it's got two different meanings. And just show you, I'm not making this up. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 
3, because they always say, well, Paul always uses dikaios as justified. Well, no, he doesn't. Justified meaning saved. Because in 1 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul uses the exact same form of the word of dikaios that James uses in James chapter 2, verse 21, where it says Abraham was justified by works. Actually, it should be Abraham was dikaios by works. Abraham was shown to be righteous by the evidence of his works. And here in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul uses the exact same word. And listen, he's talking about Jesus here, okay? Jesus who is His almighty, eternal God, who never sinned, who was perfect when He became a man. He is the Savior. He never does anything wrong. He doesn't need to be saved. He never sinned. And so Paul's talking about the process of the incarnation as Jesus came down from heaven and became a human being and lived on the earth. And there's this early Christian hymn that they probably recited or sang. And it goes like this, 1 Timothy 3.16 and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness about Jesus Christ and His coming to the world. He who was, cruci- or was revealed in the flesh when He became a human being was, get this, was vindicated in the Spirit. The word vindicated is the exact same word in James 2.21 and James 2.24. Exact same word, exact same form. So you can't, so if you're going to say that Adikaios always means saved, then you would have to say this in 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was saved in the Spirit. Not. What it means is He was vindicated or He was shown to be righteous in the Spirit. In other words, over the course of His 33 years on life, it became evident to all by how He lived His life, His deeds, His words, His thoughts, that He was perfect. His life proved what was true about him on the inside. He was perfect and sinless. doesn't mean that God saved him. Jesus didn't need to get saved. So that's just one very important truth that we need to keep in mind. That's why I can say with great confidence, and I'm not just making this up, a lot of dependable Greek scholars say the same thing on their commentaries in James, that justified isn't necessarily the best translation in verse 21 and 24. And if you legitimately wanted to, you can use the same word they just used in the New American Standard in 1 Timothy 3.16 and put vindicated there instead of justified, and it will probably be less confusing, easier to understand. Um, Go back to James chapter 2. Important distinction in dissecting this and trying to understand this. So, there are actually two different events mentioned in, about Abraham in verses 21 through 23. Two different events. And you've got to keep them separate. They happen at two different times in his life. Uh, in verse 21 of James 2, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works, offering Isaac up on the altar? That is out of Genesis chapter 22. That happened maybe when Abraham was about 116 years old. Because Isaac was grown up and probably a teenager. He was big enough to carry all the wood up the mountain, according to Genesis 22. So that's one incident in the life of Abraham where he showed great faith in God. And then uh, he mentions another incident in the life of Abraham that was, happened at a different time. And that is verse 23 of James chapter 2, where he says, And the Scripture was fulfilled which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now that is a different time period in Abraham's life almost 30 years earlier. I want you to turn to Genesis 15, because that's the historical context. So go to Gen- actually start at Genesis chapter 12. And it, it is absolutely vital and imperative that we lay the foundation before we just jump into James and try to interpret it. 
So in Genesis, that's why I said it was beautiful that Sam preached out of uh, this passage in Genesis because it, it reminded us of some history here. So in Genesis chapter 12, actually, uh, it says the Lord said to Abram. So God comes to the, Abram is 75 years old. He's a total pagan. He lives over in Babylon. He's an idol worshiper. He's done nothing good to earn God's favor at this point. Yet God in His love and His grace takes the initiative to enter into a relationship with Abraham when Abraham was 75. That's Genesis chapter 12. Then the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, go to the land that I will show you. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you about the land that I will show you. I'm not even going to give you the name. Just go. And according to Hebrews chapter 11 and here in Genesis, Abraham went. He trusted the Creator of the universe. Okay, wow. The God of the universe just talked to me. He's probably scared to death and... But he obeyed and he left everything behind, traveled 500 miles and went to Israel or at that time called the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And he traveled that way in faith at age 75. Then 11 years later, uh, if you flip over to Genesis 15, God makes his promise to Abraham when he's 75 and says, by the way, all this land is going to be yours. You're going to I'm going to make you a king. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have great descendants. You're going to bless the whole world through your descendants. Now, if you're going to have descendants, you've got to have a baby through your wife. He's married to Sarah, and she's barren, and they haven't had a baby. It's like, well, how am I going to have all these descendants without a baby, God? What? How's that going to happen? So he was believing that he was going to have a child through Sarah. Well, 11 years goes by, it still hasn't happened. Now he's 86 years old. So he's beginning to doubt. After 11 years of not having an answered prayer from God in his mind. I don't know if that ever happens to you. It happens to me. And so after these things, God takes the initiative again, and... Uh, Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So God literally speaks from heaven through a vision to Abram. Following up on the promise from 11 years previous when he was 75. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your reward. And Abram said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? Man, when are those descendants going to start coming? Because my wife, she's getting old. She's past age-bearing years. God, how are you going to fulfill this promise? I don't get it. Well, God has to do a miracle. I'm childless. You haven't given me any offspring. Verse 3. Then behold, God answered. That's what that means. Then behold, the word of the Lord came back to Abram, saying, This man, Eliezer, your servant, he's not going to be your heir, but one shall come forth from your own body, from your loins, from Sarah. He shall be your heir. And God took Abram outside, had him look at the heavens and try to count the stars, if you are able. And Abram looked up, and it's the same stars we see today, and there were so many stars he couldn't count them all. It seemed To him, it seemed infinite. Man, there are so many stars. Wow, I can't count them all, God. And God used that as an illustration. And God said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. Abram, if you are able to count the stars. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. Believe me, trust me, wait on me. You're going to have descendants, and you're going to have too many. You can't even count them. Abram, it is coming. I will fulfill my promise. And look at Abram's response. It wasn't, oh yeah, whatever, been waiting 11 years. Sure, God. He, he didn't doubt God. At that moment, Abram believed the supernatural revelation of God about a specific promise by which through his very loins, the Messiah and Savior of the world would come to the earth. Abraham, it clicked. The light went on. Abraham understood that. And as a result, he believed preliminary in the gospel as we know it. And that's why verse 6 of Genesis 15 says, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, Yahweh, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. What that means is that very moment Abraham got saved. 
He became born again. He became a believer. He entered the family of God. That is exactly what that means. So when did Abraham get saved? We know definitively he got saved at age 86. Age 86. God reckoned it. He was totally, from God's point of view, forgiven of all of his sin. Considered righteous. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, as he's talking about salvation and how we get saved, he says, by the way, here's how you get saved. It is by grace, through faith, apart from works. We offer nothing. And by way of illustration, uh, it's been this way all throughout history. And we're going to get to that in one of our points. And he brings up Abraham as the prime example of salvation by grace through faith. Okay, let's go now to um, James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Look at those three verses and turn it into four points that are practical and applicable to us today. And hopefully just that foundation is going to help you put this in a proper context so we can interpret it accurately. Because we are so used to... You know, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. So we're more familiar with Paul, his theology, his words, how he interprets things than we are James because James only wrote you know, one short book called James. So we have a Pauline mindset a lot of times. And the Apostle Paul used the word dikaios to mean justified most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. Dikaios meant justified or saved. That's why it's confusing. And here's another thing to keep in mind. Did you know that James wrote his epistle before Paul wrote his epistles? So people are backwards. Oh, James is contradicting Paul. (laughs) Not. James wrote his first. Paul came later. Uh, So keep that in mind. James has to be taken at face value from the perspective by which he writes. And there's an Old Testament precedent for the way he uses that word. Okay, let's look at these four points on the nature of saving faith. So this, James is making an argument. Apparently he's got people he knows that used to be in his congregation in Jerusalem who have now been spread abroad all over the area outside of Palestine for different reasons, persecution, famine, whatever, pilgrims who left. He probably knew a lot of these people. He heard about them 10, 15 years later. And he's writing this epistle because some reports aren't good. And one of the main things he's hearing about these Christians or professing Christians is they've been waiting around 10 to 15 years for Jesus to return. Jesus hasn't returned. So they're kind of apathetic about the Christian life. Uh, does that ever happen to you? That, that happens to me. Because that's the cycle of Christian living, isn't it? You get saved. Oh, Jesus is coming tomorrow. 20 years goes by. Well, I don't know if Jesus is ever going to come. Oh, hum. And that's what's going on with these Jewish Christians. Uh, so they are apathetic. They aren't doing basic things they should be doing. Their professed faith is not being put into action. And from the very beginning of the epistle, he has to kick them from behind to get them to go into action. And he gives them 56 imperatives and things they need to do if they're true Christians on a regular basis as a lifestyle. He just rebuked them in chapter 1 for not doing the most basic things that Christians should be doing by way of good works. And that's loving other people. Loving other believers. Starting with the widows and the orphans and the poor in your midst. And you're neglecting that. Those are good works. That's what James is talking about. And he's hearing reports this ain't happening uh, routinely with a lot of believers. And so could very well be. And James heard the words of Jesus because they were half-brothers. Jesus talked about there would be weeds among the wheat. There would be empty professors, pseudo-Christians, false believers. Sometimes you can't even tell them apart. Sometimes you can kind of discern by the fruit of their life, the works of their life, the words in their life, the attitudes in their life. 
And we're going to see that as a key principle as well. So uh, that's what James is getting at. So let's go to look at point number one about the nature of saving faith. And so James is combating uh, a lot of Christ, professing Christians who have their own definition about what it means of faith or to believe in Jesus. And apparently some of them, I believe in Jesus. I profess in the Gospel, but I don't have to have good works in my life. I don't have to be obedient. I don't have to walk my talk. Sounds kind of like some of American Christianity, doesn't it? I can just believe and I'm going to heaven. I can believe and do my own thing. I don't have to change my life. I don't have to be obedient. I don't have to submit. I don't have to believe in the Lordship of Christ. It's by faith. It is by grace. We have come to call this easy believism. And and James has actually taken that on. He's saying that is inconsistent. That is not true Christianity. That is so basic. I mean, he's having a hard time to even make an argument because he just can't even believe that some professing Christians actually believe this. And this is so relevant to us in American Christianity and our culture because whether you're aware of it or not, this exact same issue confronted American Christianity beginning in the 1980s head on. John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And it drew a line in the sand between the Lordship Salvationists and the non-Lordship Salvationists. And simply stated, the non-Lordship Salvationists, or actually the Lordship Salvationists said you had to believe that Jesus was the Lord and the Savior. You had to repent of your sin and believe in the Gospel to be saved. And once you're saved, the Lordship Salvationists believe that once you got saved, God changed you and made you a new person from the inside out in keeping with 2 Corinthians 5.10, which says that anybody who is in Christ has become a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And because God has redeemed you and He has saved you and given you a new nature and given you the supernatural Spirit of God to live inside of you, as a result, you are going to produce good works in your life. You can't be a true Christian without eventually having good works in your life. So they would say, for somebody to say they're a professing Christian and 10, 15, 20 years goes by and there's no spiritual fruit that is evident in their life, then they probably are not a Christian. That would be the Lordship Salvationist view. Well, there's an entire segment of Christianity who is offended and appalled by the notion. Because who, who made you the fruit inspector? Only God knows the hearts, which is true. God is the only one that knows the hearts. And the non-Lordship Salvationist perspective said, well, actually, salvation is much simpler than you're making it. As a matter of fact, you don't need to repent of your sin to be saved. That was one of their main views. Because they would say repentance is a human work. And the Bible says we're not saved by our works. So uh, repentance has nothing to do with being saved. Repentance comes later in life after you're a Christian, if you get around to it. So, to become a Christian, all you've got to do is believe in Jesus. That's it. Believe in Jesus. And then you're saved. All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And it could very well be that you produce zero good works in your life for the rest of your life, even if you live for the next 50 years. I am not kidding. I am not exaggerating. Books and books and books have been written on this. This debate went on for three decades. It's called the Lordship Salvationist Debate. It ripped through churches across America, just like the charismatic movement and every other movement that comes along. And literally, churches have taken sides. Entire evangelical organizations have taken sides. I remember when I applied to a very large organization, a theological organization that I liked, respected, liked the the, the statement of faith, except there was one thing under salvation that said, we do not believe in Lordship Salvationism. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's going to be a problem after I filled out my application. So I called the president of the organization in Dallas, very well-known theologian and pastor, and 
I told him, man, I respect your organization. I want to be a part of it and affiliated with it and blah, blah, blah. But there's, and it was, oh, that's great. And uh, I already sent him my application electronically and, oh, wonderful. I said, but there's a little hitch. I need a clarification. In your statement of faith on salvation, it says that you don't believe in lordship salvationism. Well, that's right. And then he just railed on MacArthur for about an hour and, uh, or maybe a little less. <laughs> and I said, well, I kind of, I, I believe in the lordship salvation perspective. But, so is that going to keep me from joining your organization? He said, yeah. I said, oh, bummer. Well, so we, you know, it was a friendly conversation, but he just, that was a dividing line for him. Sorry, you lose. Uh, but that's just one example of how this is, and I've experienced churches, same thing. They're a Lordship Salvationist church, and when they look through the resume, if you're a, I mean, a non-Lordship Salvationist church, and if you're a Lordship Salvationist dude, you are not a candidate to be a pastor at our church. And so it's kind of a sad thing, but... Uh, it has separated and clarified truth on this matter, I think, which is a healthy thing. So we, it, it impacts all of us whether we realize it or not. So, but I think James speaks to it very clearly. So let's go ahead and look at it. These four points. Uh, what is the true nature of saving faith? Uh, first one is that saving faith has remained constant since creation. Saving faith has remained constant since creation. I put 221A just because it... It mentions Abraham. He's talking about the nature of true faith. And so he uses Abraham as an illustration. And he's saying that, you know, Abraham is no different than us as Christians. Abraham was a man of faith. And we profess to be people of faith. Abraham uh, was saved in a certain way. And then he had good works manifest in his life. And if we're professing Christians, then at some point we should have good works manifest in our life the same way Abraham did. But the point is, oh, and then also... um, Oh, yeah, so Abraham, Abraham was around 2,000 years before James was. And the point is he's saying salvation and the nature of faith was the same in the Old Testament as it is today. God hasn't changed things. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because the non-lordship salvationist view says salvation has not been constant. God's requirements haven't always been the same. As a matter of fact, God changed his mind or he changed the plan. And they would say, in the Old Testament, I'll never forget, here's a perfect example. I was at a Bible study when I was still in seminary here in California, and the guy leading the Bible study was actually a friend of mine and kind of a mentor. And he graduated from that Baptist seminary here up by the Golden Gate. And he had his MDiv, and he'd been a pastor for 10, 15 years, and he's leading the Bible study that I'm a guest at, and it was, on, it was out of Romans, and he's talking about salvation. And he said categorically, well, what you need to understand, folks, is that in the Old Testament... Uh, People or saints, they were saved by good works. They were saved by obedience to the law of Moses. But in the New Testament, we're saved by grace and through faith. And I wasn't done with seminary yet, but I knew that was not true. I was thinking, whoa, that doesn't sound right. And, and I was right. Uh, you're not saved. In the Old Testament, believers were not saved by good works and obeying the law of Moses. Paul was adamant about that. He was clear. Nobody gets saved through obedience to the law of Moses. God never intended that way. Nothing has changed. Salvation has always been the same. It is by grace, through faith, apart from works, even starting with Adam and Eve, who I believe were saved. And they were saved by God. God seeks sinners to save them. And He sought out Adam and Eve the same way. Giving them the pre-gospel through Genesis 3.15. Through the Messiah, you will be saved. By grace, through faith, Apart from works, that has been true in the Old Testament. It's been true through all of life. And this friend of mine actually got his training from a certain source where this recent view has come, saying that salvation was different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Where did it come from? Well, 
If you know who Lewis Berry Schaefer is, I have his seven volumes of systematic theology. He was the president of Dallas Seminary for a long time in the early days. And in his systematic theology, he just categorically says, what you need to understand, Christian, according to dispensationalism or hyper-dispensationalism, in the Old Testament, saints were saved by good works. In the New Testament, we are saved by grace through faith. Well, Sperry Schaefer didn't make that up. He got it from his mentor, C.I. Schofield, 100 years ago, who was one of the key men who started Dallas Seminary. And I have a Schofield study Bible, and some of you might as well, and it's got notes in the bottom. And actually, if you look in your Schofield study Bible today, and some of the Old Testament notes, it will tell you categorically, in the Old Testament, saints were saved by works. In the New Testament, were saved by grace through faith. It is still there. That's where all of this comes from. That's the origin of it. Uh, and that is unfortunate because this is so basic to Christianity. This is like a no-brainer. That's why I never really got into that debate. I was like, uh, that's silly. Point being, he's saying Abraham is the exemplar or the model of what it means to have true saving faith. He is the man. Uh, and I was making the point that he gives two examples out of the life of Abraham. Abraham showed great faith when he offered Isaac on the altar when he was 116 years old. And Abraham showed great faith uh, 30 years earlier when he was 86 when he got saved, verse 23. So look at James 2.23. I want you to show you something. The Scripture was fulfilled. Literally, the Scripture was completed. The Scripture came to fruition is what that means. The Scripture came to fruition 30 years later in the life of Abraham as his faith continued to grow and grow and grow and manifest itself all the time in great acts of obedience because he was already saved. And he got saved at 86. In Genesis 15:6, according to verse 23, the Scripture was fulfilled when Abraham offered Isaac out of obedience, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, there it is. Verse 23, James clearly says, how Abraham got saved, it's verse 23, he believed God. That's how he got saved. Well, when did this happen? It was Genesis 15 when he was 86, when he simply believed in the promise of God. And that's when God saved him. So James makes it clear. James got saved in verse 23 of James chapter 2 when he was 86 years old from Genesis 15:6, when he simply believed in God. He put his faith in God. That is how he got justified. That is how he got saved. From that point on, as an 86-year-old saved man for the rest of his life, there were several things that Abraham would do that were great acts of obedience manifesting his faith. Did you know that faith is invisible? If you're all just sitting here and didn't say anything and just sat there did nothing... I'm going around, okay, uh, he's saved, she's saved, she's saved, she has faith, he has faith, he has faith. How in the world would I know that? I don't know that. Only God knows that. The only way that a human being can see the fact that you have true faith is how it manifests itself and issues itself in the fruit of your life through words and through actions. That's what's going on right here with these two incidents in the life of Abraham. Abraham was saved at age 86 simply by grace through faith in God. He was a believer And then 30 years later, he showed to the world that he had true saving faith, unlike Judas. Abraham was a great man of faith because he was already saved. And as a result, he did great deeds in his life, godly works. And one of the greatest godly works he ever did, issuing out of faith or from faith in God, was when he took his only beloved son Isaac, who was the promise that God gave, and was willing to put him on the altar and kill him. Because he believed God in the resurrection. So, when he brought Isaac, put him on the altar, it was about to kill him. That was a manifestation of faith that Abraham 
had because he had already been saved for 30 years. So when he did that, uh, James 2.21, when Abraham offered Isaac up on the altar, that didn't justify Abraham, that vindicated Abraham. It showed that he was already righteous. It put his faith on display. It was the fruit of his life, not the root of his life. And that happens in our life. As we walk the Christian life, if we are truly saved, God is going to produce good works in our life. And every once in a while, you actually might do something good. And don't give yourself kudos. You just praise God. God, that was all you. That was the Spirit of God. Everything bad in my life that happens is my fault. Everything good that I do in my life is your glory and your power. And so that's, that's what he's talking about here. But the point is, people are saved the same way all throughout history. It is always by God's grace, through faith, apart from works, and that's point number one. Saving faith has remained constant since creation. I do want to read out of... Look at Hebrews 11 real quick. Because this underscores uh, the same point. That salvation has always been same, the same and constant throughout history, even before Abraham. Okay, Abraham is uh, 2000 B.C., 4,000 years ago. But salvation by grace through faith happened even before that. According to Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith... That's the, that's the topic of Hebrews 11 is faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the whole topic. And then verse 2, he says, For by it, for by faith, the men of old. See, there it is. Believers in the Old Testament, by faith, end of verse 2, gained approval, were justified, were made right with God. Their sins were forgiven. It was by faith. It's always been that way. Nothing has changed. Hence the reformers who took their strong protest, Luther and Calvin, crying out in Latin, sola fide, by faith alone. Sola uh, scriptura, from the Scripture alone, the revelation alone, for God's glory alone, by grace alone. They're, they didn't make that up. They're just reiterating what has always been true, what Hebrews 11 says. For by faith, Old Testament saints gained approval by God. It was through faith. It wasn't by works. Uh, verse 4, notice the first person mentioned in the Old Testament who got saved by faith. Adam and Eve very well could have been saved, but here's the first one he highlights because Abel was a righteous man. By faith, Abel, for example, offered to God a better sacrifice. So what he's saying is Abel was a man of faith. He lived by faith. He got saved by faith through God's grace. It wasn't by his works. Did Abel do good works? Absolutely. Why did he do good works? Because he was already saved. He was already saved. If you're a Christian, you will do good works whether you want to or not. Did you know that? That's kind of a controversial statement. But that's what Hebrews 12 says. If you're a true Christian, you're going to do good works because God promised to do it. And He'll do it through the power of His Holy Spirit. He'll do it through difficult circumstances in life. He'll do it through chastening if He has to. But He's going to produce good works in our life. That is His promise. By faith, Abel. Oh, by the way, I said, you know, Abel produced good works not to become a Christian but because he was a Christian, which is the same old adage. You bark because you're a dog not to become a dog, Right? And that's true of the Christian. Uh, then he goes on and lists all these people and in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, age 75, obeyed God. It's interesting because Abraham wasn't justified at age 75, but he obeyed God anyway. You mean unbelievers will obey the God of the universe at times? Absolutely. That's all over the Old Testament. Because they have a conscience, they were made in His image, they know He is real, they fear Him even though they want to deny Him. But Abraham began 
this journey of faith at age 75. It culminated later in his life. But there's all these examples of Abraham manifesting his faith as he walked with God. Then he got saved at age 86. And then there are certain things he believed and acted on. He believed in the resurrection because God revealed that to him. And as a result, because he believed, that's why he was willing to kill his own son Isaac, by the way. Because he believed in the resurrection. He thought, wow, this is my only kid. If I kill him, it's, the promise is over, but God has to keep his promise, and therefore he has to raise my son from the dead. So, okay, I guess I'll kill him because God can do resurrection. That is exactly what Hebrews says was going through Abraham's mind when he was ready to sacrifice his own son. He believed in the doctrine of the resurrection, which came to him with supernatural revelation. So Hebrews 11, just a good example of all those saints in the Old Testament, all saved by grace through faith and as a result had good works in their life. Let's go on to number two. So saving faith has remained constant since creation. And then James highlights a point, point number two, saving faith produces godly behavior. Saving faith produces godly behavior. That is his argument in James chapter 2. By the way, James and Paul, when they're talking about dikaios, either justified or vindicated, however you translate it, Paul and James are actually talking about two different things. They're talking to two different audiences. They're actually addressing two totally different problems in the church. James was dealing with apathetic, professing Christians who weren't doing good works. Paul is dealing with professing Christians who think they can get saved by doing good works. And legalists. Those are two totally different issues. So they're coming from two totally different perspectives, but they complement one another perfectly. And so we need to keep in mind, Paul did not contradict James. Paul believed everything James taught. As a matter of fact, Paul himself taught the very same thing that James did because the Apostle Paul believed that a Christian was vindicated by their good works. How do I know that? Well, let's look at one verse. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We looked at it earlier, but we didn't look at the whole argument, and that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I also want to look at verse 10 because verse 10 goes with 8 and 9. That's another important principle in hermeneutics and Bible study. Don't just pull a verse out of context and forget to read the three verses before and the five ones after. It doesn't work that way. That's horrible. That's taking something out of context, distorting its meaning. So if you want to pull out Ephesians 2, 8, 9, well, you've got to read the eight verse, seven verses before and the five verses after. I want to look at least one of the verses after Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Uh, so Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace, that's God's initiative, by grace you have been saved or justified. The human component or element involved was faith. That's believing in response to the revelation that God gave us about sin and salvation. Faith is always a response of the human to God's initiative. It is always a response to divine revelation. So the order and the sequence is very important. The chronology. God's the initiator. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. There it is. But He doesn't stop there. In order that no one should boast. Verse 10 is key. For we Christians are God's workmanship. We are His masterpieces. We were created in Christ Jesus. When were we created in Christ? When we got saved. We were recreated as new creatures. Created in Christ Jesus... 
Get this. For the purpose of good works. Wow, that's one of the reasons God saved us and made us Christians. God saved you to do good works through you to the world. This is a guarantee that Christians will have good works and fruit in their life. So it's by grace, through faith, apart from works. But by the way, works aren't obsolete. Works are a part of God's plan. Works issue and flow from a godly life after you're saved by the power of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, what was God's plan in thinking about these good works He was going to produce in our life? Which God prepared beforehand, literally. God, pre- God had a plan in eternity past before you were, or I were ever born that He was going to save you and do good works through you after you got saved. Guaranteed. That's what he's talking about. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, the word walk is used several times and it always talks about the consistency of the Christian's life. It is a lifestyle. It is a pattern. And what he's saying, the pattern normally of the Christian is they're going to have godly fruit in their life. Godly works, godly attitudes. Not perfect, not perfection, right? It's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life as a Christian. This is guaranteed. This was planned by God in eternity past. So if you're a born-again believer today, legitimately saved in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, amazingly, God is producing good works in your life and in my life. He is. That's His promise. That's what He's going to do. And He's going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit and other means He chooses to use. And it's a glorious thing. And we could, that should comfort our souls. We're going to be used by the Creator and the Savior of the universe to be lights and salt in this world on His behalf, guaranteed. Despite the fact that we are fallen, sinful, crackpots, whatever you want to call it, right? God is a gracious God, a good God, fulfilling His purpose. I'm actually going to... I didn't even start point two. This is too important. Uh, So next week, we will pick up with everything actually I wanted to say about point two. That was all introduction for point two that I didn't plan on saying at all because it's not in my notes. And then we'll pick up point two, three, and four next week. And I knew this was going to happen. I thought, man, I'm only doing three verses. Man, that's I need to go slower. That's too much. And I was right. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to remind us all week long of these wonderful Truths about His grace in our life. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to know You through Jesus Christ by divine adoption. The glory of Your Gospel that the perfect holy God of the universe in Your grace would take the initiative to come down to Your fallen creation on a rescue mission to save sinners. Not because of anything we have done, but by Your grace. And because you value us, because we're made in your image. And thank you that you've done it through a very clear plan. Jesus Christ, His perfect plan, His perfect life, death, and resurrection. Lord Jesus, thank you that you reign on high, overseeing the world as the Lord of the universe, calling out sinners through your truth of the Gospel and the convicting work of your Holy Spirit and using believers as your vessels to proclaim the message. That, that is awesome. Thank you that we can be a part and involved in Your supernatural, eternal plan. Remind us, God, that You want us to be used by You, vessels of truth and blessing to others around us and even to the world. That the world might look at our good works and give glory to the God in heaven. And You're the one who deserves that glory. We thank You for our time of fellowship today. Be with us. Go before us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.